Welcome back to Money Multiple, where we explore trends, topics, and pathways for private capital investors in Asia to deploy capital and maximize returns. Southeast Asia is a region that is experiencing rapid growth, both in terms of population and economic development. As a result, the demand for healthcare services is growing rapidly. There are a number of key trends that are shaping the healthcare landscape in Southeast Asia. These include a population demographic that is gradually aging in the 2020s, but will age more rapidly as we get into the next decade, placing a far greater demand on healthcare systems. There is a rise in chronic diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and cancer. As a result, there is a growing need for preventive care and treatment of chronic diseases. There is an increasing use of technology in healthcare. Telehealth, for example, is becoming more popular due to its convenience as well as the ability to deliver healthcare in rural areas. With an increasing burden on governments and the ever-increasing demand for quality healthcare, the private sector is growing rapidly in Southeast Asia to fill the gap. Private capital can play a major role in the development of the healthcare sector in the region as well as in public-private partnerships. To navigate this interesting topic, I am pleased to be joined by Dr. Lok Wai Chong, Program Lead at Singapore's Ministry of Health Office for Healthcare Transformation, and Abe Bangi, EY ASEAN Healthcare and Life Sciences Leader. Abe, let's start with you. Can you take us through how the global healthcare landscape has evolved post-pandemic, and what are the broad implications for the industry? Sure. Look, there are maybe a couple of trends that we're observing. The first is around increasing awareness and consumerism in healthcare. What I mean by that is people are now looking at prevention. They're looking at regular checkups, increased diagnostics. All of this is creating a lot of demand for healthcare services. We're seeing that growth rates are obviously a lot higher now compared to pre-pandemic. And as a result, uh, we are expecting not just tertiary care, but also primary care and secondary care investments and expenditure to increase going forward. The second trend we're observing is around technology adoption. And here we're obviously seeing both physicians and consumers adopt uh, technology both to, I guess, look at virtual care, but also hyper-personalization. This has resulted in evolving models of care. Some people will argue that models of care, technology advancement are two different things, but I see them as at an intersection of how things are shaping up. The third is the shortage of healthcare workers. I think COVID has made a bad situation even worse. A lot of people have gone into early retirement They've changed their profession. As a result, the shortage of workers has now become even more acute, which means hospital operators have to now look at ways to become more productive, efficient. WHO estimates that 30% of the resources spent on healthcare are actually wasted. So there's a lot of opportunity for us to address that. And uh, we see players looking at this through pandemic and also post-pandemic. Dr. Lok? Yeah, thanks. I think this is an interesting question because what has changed through COVID and now we are post-COVID I mean, from a healthcare transformation point of view is that I think the awareness now, governments, providers, and even citizens alike, it's not just about non-communicable diseases. You know, for many years, we were tackling diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, heart disease, but communicable disease is back. We thought we had polio wiped out. We've managed to solve malaria as in most countries. But now COVID and it's worldwide. And now we're thinking about the next pandemic, disease X, some people call it. I think this attention towards the full spectrum of 
disease and issues that might hit humanity is going to be there. I think all healthcare systems have to be prepared for both the non-communicable disease as well as the communicable disease, both ends. I think the other thing that, especially as Abe mentioned, is that whole post-COVID or COVID experience has brought up and accelerated the adoption of telemedicine, data and IT and technology adoption. It was really no choice. People were forced in a lockdown period to really seek care or receive care remotely. So that has really accelerated adoption. And so we have seen massive adoption of this. New business models have come up because of that. The use of IT and technology was also very interesting because they determined the success of COVID measures, right? Contact tracing, planning for vaccination, even lockdowns, planning how to do that at the population level. Now, those have opened up doors for data sharing between agencies, between government agencies and such. And this will be only carrying forward and will actually help in many of the things we want to do for population health. I think the thing, and again, Abe did allude to this, is that we will see new models of care. We are thinking now that beyond just high-cost facilities, you know, tertiary hospitals where actually disease spreads very fast, we need to go into more lower-cost, upstream, non-acute settings, decentralized healthcare. In Singapore, we call it beyond hospitals to community and maybe community to homes. And I think more and more so, we will see business models or new care models around this trend of uh, moving beyond hospitals into community. Thanks, Dr. Lok. And if you get to the Southeast Asian landscape, you know, Southeast Asia is many countries, each of them with different levels of evolution, each of them operating at a different pace. Can you take us through some of the key trends and implications for operators in our region based on some of the topics you just covered? Players in the region for the longest time have benefited from this demand-supply mismatch, shortage of operational beds, and as a result, have enjoyed very healthy operating margins. But both pre-pandemic and during COVID, we've seen an increase in institutional investment. It's improved, I guess, the stock of beds, but equally it's intensified competition. Now, if you combine the trends that we spoke about and this intensifying competition, it's very clear for a lot of the operators that they need to strengthen their fundamental building blocks to the business. A couple of areas we see players starting to get focused on. The first is improving doctor engagement. I think historically, they have not adopted a rigorous means to building that relationship with the doctors. I think that is definitely an area of focus going forward. Combined with that, they're now also looking at tracking their clinical KPIs as a means of improving both patient outcomes as well as experience to the patients. And the last is, I think, the chronic underinvestment in IT and technology that's happened within this sector is has to be addressed. Dr. Lok alluded to beyond hospital, and if you need to look at those models of care, technology plays a very important role. And hence, we will see both modernization efforts, but equally an opportunity for hospital systems to get smarter and interconnected with a lot of new tech investment that will and should go into this space. If I may just add, Luke, I think, I think the, in Southeast Asia, we have a huge variation in terms of the maturity of health systems, as well as the use of technology, the modernity of hospitals, and so on and so forth. But there are some common observations I found, right, just looking across, is that there is a trend now to see the importance of nearshoring in sourcing rather than expecting things to be imported in or for your patients to go overseas for treatment, for instance. So I see many countries which in the past would be net exporters of medical tourism, for instance, are now building higher quality facilities in-country because with the pandemic really showing forth 
or surfacing with borders closing, with supply chain shocks and all that. It's better to nearshore and insource most of these in-country. So these are the trends I'm seeing and it seems to be a bit of greater interest even in governments to ensure this happens and policies are changing in that respect, you know, to encourage more nearshoring in that sense. So I think that will be an interesting trend to watch. And Dr. Lok, with healthcare now being, I guess, the top of mind in the population across the region, could you also elaborate how universal healthcare has evolved and how do you expect it to evolve, I guess, in the near term? Universal healthcare is very much part of this whole sustainable development goals, which is also a very big thing now in ESG. We think about that and all investors are very concerned about ESG compliance and all that. But I think in pre-COVID days, certainly universal healthcare has advanced and improved over many years in terms of focus on non-communicable disease, access to care, and also primary care development, especially in the lower-income countries. I think in the post-COVID period, we are now recognizing there are cracks in the system. Inequalities exist not just between poor and rich countries, for instance, but even in country, in cities, where poorer areas of the city have higher incidence of because of the spread of disease, because they are crowded together, because of lower access to healthcare facilities, and also essential workers working in these settings have higher mortality rates, for instance. I think this will become increasingly important, especially in urban settings, to make sure that we tackle inequities in terms of access to care, even in-country, and not just talk broadly about poorer countries having to do this and richer countries not having to do that. I think more and more they are also thinking, where I'm seeing countries thinking of universal healthcare has to be balanced with pandemic preparedness. Again, they seem to be dichotomy. They seem to be a distraction from each other. In fact, they focus on different things. But we probably have to move towards a future where both have to be focused upon and both built up together to be prepared for the next pandemic acts, but also to actually really change lifestyles and behaviors so that we deal with the slower but also inevitable pandemic of chronic diseases. Thanks, Dr. Lok. So I think that sets the tone quite nicely for the next topic that I want to cover off. And maybe, Abe, let me come back to you on this. Can you take us through some of the key investment themes that private capital investors in Southeast Asia should focus on? And if you can contrast this between developed and developing markets. Yeah, there are different archetypes of assets that cater to healthcare needs of the population. If you look at this globally, especially in the Western world, beyond tertiary care facilities, there is also ambulatory care, single specialty hospitals, network of GP clinics, specialist clinics, all of them cater to the healthcare needs. But for whatever reason, in our neck of the woods, we've seen that tertiary care hospitals are kind of the destination for people who need care. And as a result, we haven't seen other formats exist in the past. And all of the available capital has changed. Very few groups that have essentially organized these large tertiary care hospitals into a network, which Consequently, means that their valuations have gone up. And now, rightly or, or wrongly, so many of them have attracted capital at very high valuation multiples. Now, there's probably an opportunity for investors to diversify and look at those other asset classes and maybe find opportunities to roll up, scale up, invest in these secondary facilities, ambulatory care facilities, single specialty hospitals, and clinics going forward. Yeah, from the Singapore perspective, I would say that, again, Singapore is a standout in terms of uh, more advanced and more developed than our surrounding neighbours in Southeast Asia. But the themes that I'm seeing in Singapore has a lot to do with 
what our new focus, our refreshed focus on primary care and prevention, on population health, and on capitation financing. So in primary care, for instance, the current focus in Singapore is to get everyone enrolled to his or her own personal family doctor, to have all-rounded support for a healthier lifestyle in the community, and also to be empowered to take care of his or her own health. But this will require enablers. And we are here seeing the technology as an enabler, but also data, financing, rethinking the workforce, deal with the shortages that are around the world, but how do you rethink of workforce and redesigning jobs in healthcare? Empowering self-care and self-management through the rise of apps, wearables, where residents or citizens are encouraged to take care of their own health even before they are sick will come up a lot and all this are dumped under primary care. I think in terms of population health, it's interesting because uh, if we think about the lifespan, looking across the whole of life and, and everyone in the population, how is that different from what we always say is part of public health anyway? But I think what's important here is to divide up geographically where people stay and putting funding and accountability onto regional health managers, which are in Singapore, other healthcare clusters. So by putting the accountability there, then they also have then the mandate to reorganize or organize care and design it and plan it accordingly to take care of every resident from womb to tomb. So I think that's going to be a big thing coming up. And again, the enablers underlying that will be interesting to watch. In terms of the way healthcare is financed, so again, we see healthcare financing and capitation financing as almost like the epitome of value-based healthcare because we are now saying that a certain amount is given for the provider for the whole life cost of a particular person staying in this area. So in that sense, then it's up to him, up to the provider to organize both preventive primary care as well as acute care for that resident. And so in the process, be able to improve the care and the health of the residents, but at the same time also lower costs throughout the whole life course. So I think these three trends in Singapore especially will be well worth watching. It's still evolving. Many things are moving, but I think it's very exciting. Thanks, Dr. Logan. Maybe I just wanted to shift gear to the topic of cost and margins. Now, clearly over the last couple of years, margins have been under pressure. Today, we are in a highly cost inflationary environment. What should operators in the region be thinking about to protect and improve their margins? There's always a need to balance the objective of staying economically viable versus providing quality care. And I think it's more important for healthcare operators rather than any other sort of business as such. And there are very few levers, to be honest, that healthcare operators can use to improve margins. The first is to try and optimize their material spend, which is essentially look at what is the investment going into drugs and consumables and finding ways to reduce that to best-in-class levels, which is there are players who spend about 20% of their revenue on it. And if you can get anywhere close to that, then there is a way to improve your margins. There are a number of ways of doing this. You can look at standardizing your formulary, looking at substituting some of the products. Again, some easy, some not so easy, but there's definitely ways and means of doing that. The second lever is to look at your staff cost, which is another big cost bucket. And here again, they need to balance the current challenge of shortage in the workforce and also look at improving their productivity. And staffing ratios are potentially one way to do this. Also looking at the amount of non-value-added work that clinical workforce ends up doing that can be reduced by automation, can be reduced by 
realigning uh, the responsibilities between clinical workforce versus ancillary workforce, some investment in technology. So there are a number of ways of improving productivity and thereby reducing the burden on the workforce as well as the workforce cost itself. And the third is an indirect way to doing this. Healthcare business is a high operating leverage business. So the more you improve throughput, i.e. bed occupancy rates and or reduce average length of stay, it has a positive correlation to margins. And we see a lot of players now getting smarter in how they position their hospitals with respect to specific payer groups and also their investment in specialities, whether it is a cardiovascular center of excellence or an oncology center of excellence. And they're positioning themselves specifically with regard to their capabilities in those areas to specific payer groups. And I think that's definitely helping them improve occupancy as a result. And like I said, that has a correlation to margins. And, and are there any lessons that the private sector can actually take from the public sector? Definitely. Yeah. The public sector, given the scale of operations, has gone through a lot of this historically. I think the one big learning, especially in the Singapore environment, what the different clusters have done since, I think, 2015 or even earlier, is the focus on value-driven outcomes. And certainly that is an area that private healthcare operators need to invest in for two reasons. One, to naturally provide better quality of care to the patients, but also to be able to track and make the right intervention so there is a correlation to value. And historically, it hasn't been done in this part of the world. And we've seen at least a few public healthcare systems like Singapore invest in it and reap rewards. And again, that's probably an area that the private players can adopt and, and learn from. There are many others, and this in particular stands out for me. If I can just add on to the point on what operators can do to improve the way they work, I think very importantly during this time is to look after the mental well-being of their workers. We are facing acute shortages across whole healthcare sector, many nurses especially, but also doctors and other allied health professionals. And this is post-pandemic, and I think part of it is due to the lockdowns, the kind of a burnout faced by the workforce, and many have left the profession totally. I think just looking at that and making sure retain talent, engage your uh, the staff, and pay attention to all these factors uh, in terms of how it leads to staff turnover and attrition is going to be important. There's a term that says go beyond the triple aim to the quadruple aim, right? Better care, better health. Uh, lower the cost, but also more meaning or joy at work. I think that's the challenge for both public and private sector operators alike. In terms of whether we can learn, whether private sector can learn from public sector, I thought the interesting point was to spot how to really recognize how local governments and payers are thinking in terms of how they want to, what are the pressures on them, whether to lower costs, to improve quality, to improve safety of their systems, and be able to see whether you can fit or find the business models that can fit into that kind of trend. It could be very local, these trends. The priorities of different governments to do different things at different times in their history or journey will be different. So I think it's important for investors and providers in the private sector to know what are the priorities at that time and be able to ride that wave. For instance, telemedicine rode the wave during COVID, addressing the problems of people not being able to freely move about or to attend hospitals because of the risk of catching COVID, for instance. So if we see a trend like that, then that's where we can, private sector can also 
write on it and be able to capture value from it. That's an interesting one. So in terms of the whole topic of digital transformation, can you probably elaborate a little bit on how the public sector is approaching this? Digital transformation is interesting because Singapore is fortunate in a way. Our hospitals, public system especially, are very well digitalized. Now, in terms of reaching out to GPs, uh, the general practitioners and primary care, it's a challenge because many of them still need to get digital and then we be able to harness that, all the technology that harness what technology can offer. But I think we think of this in terms of the outcomes and benefits that we want to get out of it, not just tech for tech's sake. I think that must be the important point that all public sector healthcare have to think about. So what are the outcomes and benefits for, let's say, to residents? Is it to enable and empower them to take charge of their own health? What are the kind of technologies we need for that? Is it wearables? Is it mobile app where everybody has a mobile phone so it's easier to nudge them into healthier behaviors? Okay, second is to providers. So what kind of technology would actually enable and connect up providers to deliver coordinated, better and more integrated care between facilities after discharge from one setting to the next, from acute hospital into long-term care? What are the type of uh, technology or digital enhancement that can improve that experience as well as the seamlessness of care? And number three types of technology use is for policy and decision makers, the payers also of the world. How do you have quality data for planning, for budgeting, for operations, for performance management, and for finally decision making and policy making? I think being able to layer that on and say that the technology is not just for technology's sake, but is to bring benefit to each of these types of stakeholders, that will be a thoughtful deployment of technology. I guess from a private sector perspective, as well as health tech is a big topic. I think Dr. Lok touched upon the topic of transformation. Can you just take us through some of the big impacts that you see health tech making in the delivery of healthcare? We're all aware of the impact that teleconsultation has had during COVID. Uh, Of course, the rapid adoption has helped some players scale. But equally, questions are being asked on the long-term viability of some of these health tech players just offering teleconsultations. We've seen them diversified to now being an e-commerce platform for healthcare products. Some have even looked at providing digital interventions to improve the conditions of people with chronic diseases. Some have gone into e-pharmacy and some others have actually taken it one step further and invested in offline assets, whether it is a third-party administrator or a network of specialty clinics. So to make this commercially viable diversification across both services that you offer online, but equally how you connect to offline, whether by making investments yourself or by partnering with players is absolutely critical for the long-term viability and sustainability of the investment that goes into these digital health platforms. Maybe just one other topic to talk about. Southeast Asia is clearly aging and it's going to age somewhat in the 2020s, but I think aging will significantly accelerate as we get to the 2030s. And clearly the cost of healthcare is a big issue. In that sense, do you see a lot more scope and landscape for public-private partnerships? Would you see this being an increasing trend? Yes, I think aging does present both challenges and opportunities. You have rightly pointed out that the care, the burden will actually go up because there'll be fewer younger people taking care of more older people, for instance, what we call the dependency ratio. But we must also think that we are now living in a world, a 100-year life kind of scenario where 
most people can live to 100, let's say. So then if it's a multi-phase life where then you can be productive in the old age, then what are we thinking in terms of the preventive aspects to keep people well in place in their homes or in their environment and continue to be productive even into what we call old age today? If they can be healthy, then they can continue contributing back to the community. One way is, of course, to have the younger old take care of the older old in community. They are not necessarily after retirement just sitting and watching TV, for instance, but they could help each other. They could also accompany each other. So it is both taking care of the physical health, but also the mental health and the social health within the community that will improve overall population health. So I think aging itself is an issue. Yes, we are all trying to tackle this, not just in Singapore, not just South Asia, but around the world. But we have to also look at the opportunity that it presents. And with greater tech adoption, tech savviness, spending power, consumerism, even among the newly aging people, I think there are many opportunities to create products and services that will keep people in good health and productive right into old age. Yeah, look, I think public-private partnerships in the past were at an asset level. But now with the healthcare financing models evolving, as Dr. Loke alluded to earlier, there is an opportunity for partnership to happen where we can look at specific segments of the population, elderly, as you called out earlier, where both public and private players can participate to take care of their health conditions for a specific payment, which could be on capitation basis. And I think this has only been made possible because of how the financing schemes have evolved. As more countries adopt uh, Singapore's model, I think we'll see more and more public-private partnerships, but with a new twist to how it will be done. So this is an interesting convergence. So there's banking, insurance, healthcare, and possibly government working in some kind of collaboration. Potentially, yeah. I'm not sure about the relevance of the different players, but certainly I think as uh, healthcare financing schemes evolve, we could see some interesting mix of players from different industries uh, take part in provision of healthcare to these segments. I think even taking a step back and thinking about aging or even other healthcare trends, governments are realizing that in and of itself or by itself, it cannot solve all the problems and certainly they will need private sector participation, which includes investments as well as innovative solutions. Uh, products and services to be created. And I think that itself is a big opportunity and I think rising need and will be recognized, I suppose, by many for public-private partnerships. And that's the only method we can use to solve such a big issue that is a changing society. Dr. Lo Kabe, it's been a pleasure having you on. Before we close the session, maybe I'll ask each of you actually to give one piece of advice to, on the one hand, private capital investors, on the other hand, our healthcare operators. Maybe, Abe, you can start with the private capital investor side of it. Yeah, look, given that there are many forces, factors, players influencing how care will be delivered in the future, this will certainly have a bearing on investment thesis and hence should be considered as part of any diligence effort and value creation plans of investors. Thank you, Abe. Dr. Lok, would you like to add on to that? I would encourage, I think, both investors and operators to Think longer term, take calculated risks, perceive the trends, look around the corner. Transformation and disruption could happen very quickly. COVID is one example. Next one may be generative AI. We are seeing how that's changing the future of work, even within healthcare. So watch out for these 
and be prepared to adjust your thinking and investment thesis as our basis. You have been listening to Money Multiple. If you liked what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen.